Okay, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, and that's the witnesses that he's been talking about all through chapter 11, okay? That's why he says, therefore. Therefore means I'm going to draw a conclusion from what I have been talking about, okay? So therefore, he's going to say, since we have all those witnesses, he says, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. You know, the book of Hebrews, by the way, it's one of my favorite books. You know, of course, I, I, about every time I'm preaching out of one, that becomes my favorite one, but it is really one of my favorites. The purpose of the book of Hebrews is it's being written to a group of Jewish Christians, Jewish believers. These were Jewish people who were raised in the Jewish faith. They had the Old Testament as they had it read to them. They understood that a Messiah was coming and they looked forward to it. And when they heard the message of Jesus, they believed that indeed he was God's Messiah. And they put their faith and their trust in him. They repented of their sins and they became believers. The problem is in their personal lives after that, almost everything went downhill. They began to run into very difficult times because they were believers. Some of them lost their jobs because of that. Some of them, their families uh, turned their backs on them. Uh, very difficult times that they went through. But the author of Hebrews is going to address that precise issue. Okay? He's going to show them all the way through, you know, everything about Jesus is better than all that good stuff in the Old Testament. The writer of Hebrews is going to show them that Jesus is better than Moses, that Jesus was better than the law, that Jesus was better than the priesthood, he was better than the angels, and that Jesus is better than the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. The writer of Hebrews is going to take them all the way through and show them that Jesus is better. And so we get to chapter 12, what he's been doing in chapter 11, is, as it were, calling some of these Old Testament saints to the witness stand to testify about having faith in God even in difficult times. And then he comes to this word, therefore. Now they were going through difficult times. Now folks, oddly enough, this surprised them. More than a few of them thought maybe we've made a mistake becoming a Christian. Maybe we need to return back to the Jewish faith because we haven't had anything but problems since we became Christians. And every time I read that, I can't help but think, where did they get the idea anyway that becoming a Christian meant that life was going to be a bed of roses? Where did they ever get that notion? And I, I concluded there must have been TV preachers back then. 
that, that hawked their health and wealth gospel that if you come to Jesus, all of your problems are going to be over. That is not the biblical faith. Paul would have never recognized that stuff about everything, all the problems being over when he became a Christian. Uh, Jesus, that great, greatest example of all, uh, went to the cross by doing that which is right. So they got this idea somehow that everything was going to be great and they were not going to have any problems and it was a rude awakening to them. And so I want us to look at these couple of verses here that are uh, they're, they're really packed with truth because I want you to notice, first of all, the event that the writer describes here. He, he says the Christian life is like running a race. Now, folks, it's like a lot of other things too, okay? but it's like running a race. You see, running a race, if you do it right, is a struggle. It is a hardship. It takes energy. It is, involves sweat, okay? It is something that is home on the athletic field. And, and Paul described the Christian faith as even like a, a war. You know, he said, put on the whole armor of God. You know why you put on armor? Because you're in a battle. It's not because you're sitting back reposed in an easy chair, taking life easy. Paul said, another, this is another great word that's at home on the athletic field. He said, strive to enter the narrow gate. You don't slide in. You strive to enter in. Folks, I don't know that I have to tell you, but the Christian life is not something that is necessarily easy all the time. And evidently, it was presented to these people or they understood it that, that way, it is indeed a struggle. It is a race. And I like it that the writer here just tells them the truth about it. You know, he's just honest. He, he just, he appeals not to the cowardice in them. He, he appeals to the heroic in them. In, in other words, he just told, he, he didn't notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, now folks, I know, I know things are rough, but you know the old saying, you know, the the darkest hours just before dawn, you know, it is going to get better. God is going to get you out of this mess this week. Okay? There's a silver lining in every cloud. You know, things are going to get better. Folks, he didn't tell them that. You know why? Because things weren't going to get better. I, I like what it did. He just told them the truth. Folks, the person that tells you the truth is the person that loves you. The person who will not tell you the truth is the person who loves themselves. You with me? They love themselves. They don't want to create a disturbance, so they won't tell you the truth because it would hurt them too much. The person that loves you tells you the truth. And so the writer here tells them the truth. You are going through a difficult circumstance and being a Christian is not something that is easy. He actually appeals to the heroic to him. It is rough. It is like running a race. Get ready and go and be faithful. And so he does. I, I like, I read years ago what General George Patton used to say to his troops before they went into battle. Now, if any of y'all know anything about George Patton, you can probably guess that he didn't mollycoddle them any. Okay. 
Now, he didn't say to them, now, folks, we're going to go into battle. We're probably not going to lose anybody. <laughs> this thing's going to be over, and we're going to be back in our tents drinking coffee before long. Okay? That's not George Patton. You know what Patton did? He, he didn't appeal to the cowardice in them. He appealed to the heroic in them. Before they went into battle, he would say, gentlemen, some of you men today are going to have the, most, the greatest honor that could ever be bestowed upon a person. You are going to have the honor of dying for your country. Most people have to die in their beds. And you get to die for your... You know, I, I can't help but like that, you know. I mean, here's a guy that just appeals to the heroic in them. I, I, you know, we need to do that in dealing with each other as church members. You know, I know, I, I've served in churches. I, I know what the, you know, the, uh, um, the, what we'll call our sheet, we're getting all of our workers now to work and line up the nominating committee report. And, you know, we get all down, we got 10th uh, grade, 10-year-old boys. What do we do? Let's get somebody to do the... So I says, well, how difficult? Oh, it's not difficult. They don't know much. You don't have to prepare much for them. Just go in there with them and everything will be okay. Um, folks, if that's the way we're going to do our 10-year-old boys, we need not to be in there with them at all. Uh, that is, and every age is an important age. And what we ought to be doing is instead of appealing to somebody's cowardice and their lack of commitment to appeal to their commitment. And so we've got a job that is one of the most absolutely important jobs in the church. It is to mold and shape the young men who are going to be the leaders in our church and our society in the future. You see, that, that's appealing to them. That's telling people that we, we probably would do better to do that in evangelism as well. You know, tell people the truth. Uh, that the Christian life is not something that is easy and simple. And when you become a Christian, everything's going to go your way. It is not. We used to have an evangelist that came through every now and then. He had a theme. He said, it's fun being saved. Well, uh, Jesus said, if anybody comes after me, let him deny himself. You ever tried that and find out how fun it is? Okay. You know, the scripture says, mortify the deeds of the flesh. You know what mortify means? Mortician. Mortuary, it means kill it. Kill the deeds of the flesh that are in you, folks. Now, don't get me wrong. Being a Christian is rewarding and it's wonderful, and I wouldn't change it for anything, but I wouldn't necessarily call it fun. You know, everybody would like to have a Jesus who gives them everything. Well, what about a Jesus that demands everything from you? That's a completely different story. I have pastors ask me sometimes, why do you think my church is filled with unregenerate people? I said, well, the first thing I want to do is you tell me how y'all do evangelism and we may figure that out. Okay? You start with this stuff. There's Jesus. He loves you. He's got a wonderful plan. He's going to save you and life's going to be great. Well, these people got in there and found out it wasn't and so they're gone. That's how it happens. So tell them the truth. That's what the writer did. He told the truth. Folks, you're having a rough time, but let me remind you, this Christian life is like running a race, and it's a marathon. It is not going to be easy. He just loves them enough to tell them the truth, and I'm thankful for that. 
But the, the writer here also calls attention to some encumbrances that could hinder us when we are running this race. Uh, notice what he says. I, I, like, I like that old King James Version where it says, uh, lay aside everything that besets you. Most of us don't know what that means, and so maybe the early, later versions are, are better. Okay? It, the, the word there, and it's translated differently here, it means everything that clings to you and slows you down. When you're in a race, if, if a person has been wearing you know, ankle weights to get, the, they don't wear the ankle weights in the race, okay? They, they take those off, okay? And, and if, if they've been wearing some kind of an, a, a coat to keep them warm or start them sweating, they take that off. That's why you used to see the lady swimmers a lot of times that put one of these rubber hats on. It wasn't to save their hairdo, okay? It was so that they could glide through the water with the least resistance when they were swimming. What did they do? They were things that beset them. I remember when I was in the eighth grade. It was about this time of year because it was getting toward the end of the school year. And, you know, those teachers, they're needing to figure your grades and do it. So they tell you, you're going to get to play outside all day today. I'll never forget. It was called field day. <laughs> of course, every day for us was a field day. <clears throat> but that was a field day. And we were in the homeroom getting the roll call. And I saw something that it was in that day real strange. It wouldn't be strange for us today. But there was a guy that came in carrying a pair of shoes. And he was wearing a pair of shoes. Now, folks, when I was a kid, we just had two pairs of shoes. Okay? There's tennis shoes, and then there's ones you wore to church. And, and so he had these shoes lying beside him. I said, what are those? He said, they're running shoes. I said, I'll run in my tennis shoes. He said, yeah, but these are running shoes. They are made especially if you're going to run. And so I picked them up, and man, they felt like they weighed about a half an ounce apiece. I thought, man, no wonder. And I said, what are these made of? He said, they're actually made of kangaroo skin. I thought, no wonder kangaroos can jump so high. They don't weigh anything, you know? <laughs> uh, but the thing is, the guy had a pair of shoes. He was going to take off his tennis shoes. And when he started to run, was going to put on these. You know why? <clears throat> The tennis shoes hindered him. They encumbered him. Okay? He, he says, lay aside everything that when you're running the Christian race, there's some things you've got to lay aside. Now, he didn't leave it to our imagination what that is. Notice he said, the sin. Lay aside, the, just like the runner lays aside everything that's going to hamper, slow down, encumber him or her. They lay them aside or they can't run effectively, the writer here is saying, if you have sin in your life, it is going to hinder your Christian life. Well, the Bible says, you know, if you harbor sin in your life, God won't even hear you when you pray. You think that won't affect your spiritual life? God not even hear you when you pray? Hide a nickel? Well, it, it, it affects, it, it actually hampers us. And folks, it doesn't have to be, you know, we still categorize these sins sort of as big ones, little ones, or whatever else. You know, God doesn't really do that. You know, it doesn't mean that we're guilty of so, what society would consider some gross sin or whatever. Folks, I mean, it can be stuff like discontentment. Folks, if God put us in the situation that we're in and we're discontent, then we're having a problem with him. 
Uh, unthankfulness. Folks, that's sinful. That, that, can affect your, that can affect your spiritual life. Pride. Selfishness. Lack of self-control. Hitting home with anybody? I hope it does. I just went through my own problems and came up with this list of my own. Okay. Uh, impatience. Misplaced anger. Judgmentalism. Envy. Jealousy. Sins of the tongue. Worldliness. I think that means all of us have some work cut out for us. He says, lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily besets you. Folks, and you know, it doesn't take but a little bit of sin to get a toehold in the door and then finally take over. I was uh, uh, visiting when I was on a church staff, actually at Lee Road Baptist Church many, many years ago. Uh, I had to go to the home of uh, the pastor, Pat Perry at the time, and uh, he was out working in the yard. And uh, he had a, a fence along the back. It was, it was close to the length of that wall there. <clears throat> and uh, he was cutting all these vines off of it. <clears throat> and he was almost finished. And I came to see him and had to talk to him. And he said, you see those little bit of vines that's left? I'm getting ready to cut the rest of them off. And I said, well, that's good. He said, you know why I've had to work all day long to get these off? Because he said, last year I got it right down to where it is right now. And my wife called me in to eat. And I thought, well, that little bit's not going to hurt anything. And before I knew it, it completely took over the fence. I don't know how many of you knew Brother Pat, but this is the way he always did. He said, bud, let me tell you something. Sin is that way. Sin is that way. You, you have a, has a little toehold. And then before long, it takes over. <clears throat> the writer here says, lay aside everything that hampers, every sin. But now look, he also says not only every sin, but notice he also says every weight. What's the difference in a weight and a sin? Well, <clears throat> a sin is always wrong. A sin is a breaking of God's law. It is doing what God has said do not do. Or it is failing to do what God said to do. Folks, when we sin, it's not breaking some kind of an abstract principle. When we sin, it's violating the very character of God who gave us those laws. Okay. Sin is always wrong. It is breaking a command of God. And he says, lay those aside. I just enumerated several of them for us. Well, you say, well, what's a weight? Well, <clears throat> folks, is there anything wrong with those runners wearing weights on their ankles? Is there anything wrong with that? Yes? No? Uh -uh. Well, well it's, it's okay at the right time. <laughs> It's not good to wear the weight when you start to run the race, okay? A weight is not a sin. A weight is something that may be something that hinders you, but it doesn't hinder somebody else, okay? A sin is always a sin. 
But there are other things that we need to stop doing that I need to stop doing that you may not need to stop doing because it may not be a problem for you. You know, I mean, imagine the guy running the race. Can you imagine they're getting almost down to the finish line and as they start, you know, get within 15 yards of it, he looks up and starts waving to the people in the stands. Is there anything wrong with waving with people in the stands? Well, my goodness, they came to come see you run. You want to acknowledge them. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's wrong to do it at that time because it's hindering you. <clears throat> Folks, there are things that can hinder us in the Christian life that in themselves are not necessarily wrong, but they are wrong for us individually because of the effect that they have on us, and they don't have that effect on somebody else. And so there, there probably needs to be a good test in our lives. First of all, is this activity that I'm thinking about sinful? Well, we've got a clear answer on that. But what about this question? Even though the Bible doesn't say this specific thing is wrong, does it have a negative effect on me? Does it hurt my spiritual life? Does it affect my worship? And folks, there may be things that some of us have to lay aside as weights and others don't because it doesn't affect them that way. Some of us who played sports, you know, uh, you, you get in, you're right in the middle of the game, you sort of want to kill people, you know, and then you get off the court and you still want to kill people and you wish you'd have killed them more because you lost the game and two days later you're still feeling that way. You know what you need to do? You need to quit if you can't correct that. You say, well, what's wrong with sports? If it comes between you and your relationship with God, there's a lot wrong with it. It's a weight. It will affect your effectiveness. And so what we have to ask ourselves is with each activity, is this preventing me from being everything God has called me to be? If it's having that kind of effect, we need to lay it aside, not as a sin, but as a weight. It kept us from being everything that we were supposed to be. There are encumbrances that if we're going to run the race effectively, folks, we're going to have to lay them aside. But, but then he talks about something else. He, he talks about their endurance to persist. Keep on keeping on. Now, again, many of you may have the King James Version here. It's a great version overall. It, it would say this, run with Patience. Uh, others might have a translation that says run with endurance. Some of you might have a translation that says run with patient endurance. <laughs> okay? the, the, the thing is with just the word patience by itself is what it tends to mean to us. Patience usually carries an idea of being sort of passive and not doing anything. Just, uh, it, there's still Hamrick stores around here, aren't they? I know the big ones. Y'all remember walking inside the Hamrick store and there were chairs over there on the side? You remember that? Who was sitting in those chairs? The men. Yeah. And you know what they were doing? Nothing. They were doing nothing. They were being patient, passively sitting, doing nothing. That is not what this word means. 
This word, patient endurance, carries the idea of remaining up under the load of something. Carrying a load that is heavy and keeping on, keeping on. In fact, it's the same word. If you look in verse 2 there, it, it says of Jesus, he endured the cross. You know what he did? He stayed up under the load of it. It was He could have called 10,000 angels, but he didn't do it. He endured. He stayed up under the load of it. I, I, I guess a, an idea I get of it is, is like a, a football game, you know, where the quarterback pitches the ball to the back, and he gets it, and he's starting to run. You're always supposed to hit them low, folks. If you don't hit them low, they're probably not going to go. Somebody jumps on his back, and then two or three other jump on. And then all you see is one color of jerseys on a big heap like this, and the whole heap is barely moving. You know what somebody's doing under there? They're enduring. That's exactly what it is. It's keeping on, keeping on, bearing under a heavy load. And that's what he says that we are to do. We are to run this thing with patient endurance. Why does it take patient endurance? Why does it Well, because in the Christian life, we are going to face opposition. You ever had any opposition of any kind in your Christian life? If you hadn't, if you hang around long, you're going to. <laughs> but you actually have some kind of, a, where things are just tough. And they may be tough because you're being a Christian. I could give you, I'm thankful it happened, hasn't happened many times in my life, but I can give you many illustrations where it has. You know, <clears throat> where, where people were, were facing opposition. <clears throat> you know, one of the worst things about going to the beach is jellyfish. Anybody ever been stung by a jellyfish? So, I mean, yeah, you know, I mean, those things are absolutely worthless. I mean, that is one of the questions that I want to ask God when I get to heaven. Maybe the first one, why did you create jellyfish? What good are they? They are despicable. They have no backbone. <clears throat> they just go however the waves happen to take them, you know. No character about them. You know, I like, I like salmon. You know, salmon can actually and will. In, in spawning season, they have been known to swim up waterfalls that were 8 to 10 feet high. Folks, that's character. You know? <laughs> A block of wood can float downhill. Down water, it takes character you know, to go against the tide. Folks, running the race for Christ, we have to swim against the tide. And that is not always going to be fun. But you know, folks, isn't that one of the reasons it's great to have fellowship like this? Because you're out there swimming against the tide, and then you come in a place like this for a while, you can swim along with the tide for a while. You know, that's the fellowship of the saints here. Uh, persecution. Folks, uh, we have to endure patient endurance because we're going to be persecuted. And some Christians are surprised when it happens even though Jesus told us over and over again, we are not any better than he is. And if he was persecuted, we can expect the same thing, and yet when it comes, we're surprised. Well, we, we have to have this patient endurance for suffering, whatever else. You know, whatever we may be suffering. Okay? We have to patiently endure. And that's what the writer is telling us to do. But... Then he does something that I've sort of been waiting for. 
give us some encouragement here. <laughs> you know, you've told us this thing's going to be tough. Can you give us some good news? He's well, okay, let me encourage you. Folks, aren't you thankful for those people who have the gift of encouragement? Man. Oh, that's a spiritual gift, by the way. You read, they have the gift of encouragement. You just stop and think a while, you'll know who some of them are. Now, people like me, I don't have that gift, okay? If I'm going to encourage somebody, I have to really stop and think, you know, I need to go around encouraging some people sometime. But there are other people out there, they don't have to think about it. They're just encouraging people all the time. That's just who they are. You know, they, they have that gift. So he gives us some encouragement here to run. Okay? Everybody, you know, we're all different. We're motivated by different things. Okay? We're not always motivated. What, what encourages one person and, and, and uh, stimulates them to keep on keeping on, it may be one thing with one person. It may be something else with somebody else. But, but I want you to notice here, he gives them some encouragement to run. Okay? He says, uh, lay aside these sins, fixing our eyes on Jesus, run the, with endurance the race that is set before us. Who's, who is it that is looking on the race? It's all those folks that he mentioned in chapter 11 that he's talking about. You know, I, I don't, man, I probably hadn't watched the Olympics in the last three or four times we've had Olympics. But I'll tell you, when I did watch it, I think the favorite, my favorite part of it was when they would interview people that had won something or was running or was what it going to be in some kind. And, and they would ask them a question a lot of times. What is it that drives you? You know, what is it that just makes you keep, when you feel like you can't put one foot in front of another one another time, what is it that keeps you going? And they gave different answers. You know, some of them would say, I, you know, I just envision standing on that platform and them putting, you know, uh, that medal around my neck and them singing the national anthem. It's just, and others might say, you know, um, you know, my father died when I was 15. And, you know, he always wanted, and I'll tell you, I just think about doing this for my father. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons that they, that, uh, that they could give. But notice, something motivates them. Something encourages them. And the writer here says what ought to encourage us is the example of these folks that have gone before us. Think of Hebrews 11 and think of those examples of people who have gone before us and what they went through and how they persevered. Folks, I don't know anything that ought to inspire us any more than examples that other people have set for us. There, there's a, a couple that's members of my church right now She's got, I mean, it's got to be terminal cancer. They've tried everything. They've agreed to every kind of alternative treatment, new thing. There's nothing more. You know, I, if the Lord doesn't absolutely do something right, this lady's going to die, you know. But they're posting stuff on social media all the time. And they're saying stuff like, listen, we are choosing joy today. We are in the hands of God. He gives us every day that he has given to us and he has prepared a place for us, and we are looking for it, and life is an absolute joy. Now, folks, I hope that if I ever get in that kind of situation, that I will remember the example of that couple. They set an example of how we are supposed to. Folks, it's one thing to read in the Scriptures how we're supposed to face difficulties. 
it's another thing altogether to actually see somebody doing it. Okay? And, and so it was examples here. Look at the examples in chapter 11, verses 32 to 40. And then think also about this. He says in verse 1, we have this cloud of witnesses. Who are they? They're those people in, in chapter 11 that are looking down on us and seeing us run the race and seeing the difficulties and seeing the challenges. And they're saying, been there, done that. We're pulling for you. We are with you. We are just praying for you, pulling along. We are behind you completely. We know what you have been through and what you're going through. And folks, that is an encouragement. You know, I think of uh, <clears throat> that immortal classic, Pilgrim's Progress. That, that book, by the way, is the most selling English uh, book in English outside of the Bible. Okay. John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. He has Pilgrim in one case when they are going through on, on the way to the celestial city. He's left the city of destruction on their way to the, to the celestial city. <clears throat> And they're going through hard times. <clears throat> and one of his companions says, look, when we go through hard times, what is it that just keeps you going? What inspires you? He said two things. He said, one thing, I look back, and I look back at the cross of Christ. And he said, when I think about that man hanging there for me, it inspires me to keep going. And then he said, I look forward to where we're going, to the celestial city. That one of these days, all these trials are going to be over. And that God is actually using these trials to mold us and shape us and prepare us for that place that he has prepared. So when I get discouraged and I need encouragement, I look back at the cross and I look forward to where I'm going and everything gets a lot easier. He says, that's where I find my encouragement. Now, <clears throat> verse 2 says this, fixing our eyes upon Jesus. Looking at him. And why is that? Because he is the best model for this. That's why the writer goes on to say, you're the best example of this endurance the joy that was set before him for that he endured the cross. My friends, when Jesus was on the cross, there's something that inspired him to stay on it. And a bunch of them's in this room right now. Okay? That's what inspired him to stay on the cross. That's what encouraged him. That's what motivated him. And the writer says, in the midst of our difficulties, yes, look on these saints that gave us examples of the past. But keep your eye riveted upon Jesus. Now, folks, there's a reason for that. And I'll tell you something that every one of you know. People will let you down. People will let you down. We're human, we're sinful. But I'll tell you something. Jesus will never let you down. You can keep your eyes riveted upon him. He will not fail you. A lot of people really get their lives messed up because they were looking at the wrong person and that person failed them. I remember... <clears throat> a case of this happening. 
It was a church staff member, fell into sin. One of the, I'm glad I was there to hear this. Uh, one, of, one of the young people in the church came to the associate pastor and he says, well, there's my faith. It's just dashed on the rocks there. I had my faith and confidence in him. The guy said, stop right there, bud. There's your problem right there. Don't you blame this on somebody else. You had your eyes on the wrong person. What this guy was looking for was a good, way, easy way out to say, well, you know, you just can't be a Christian. People just let you down. This guy said, people always let you down. Jesus will not let you down. Rivet your attention upon him. He's the model. Now, that's not the main thing Jesus came to do. He came to model, but that wasn't the main thing. Jesus never said, I came to model the faith. Now, Peter says he came to. He's an example for us to follow. But Jesus never said that. Jesus said, I came to seek and save that which was lost. Oh, he's a great example. But he's the Savior. And so the passage here is really, remember, he's writing to Christian people and telling them to run the race. He's telling them to be faithful. He's not telling lost people. Now, folks, listen, listen to me very carefully. A person is never saved by following Jesus. Did you get that? A person is never saved by following Jesus. A person is saved by putting their faith in Jesus and repenting of their sins. That's how a person is saved. Once a person is saved, they follow Jesus. But they don't follow Jesus in order to get saved. And the problem is that's very good news for us because none of us could do it. But I'll tell you what we can do. We can trust what Jesus did for us. And we can repent of our sins. And when we do that, we find out that he is the Savior. Because our, our problem... Our problem is not so much that we needed somebody to show us how to live. Folks, we know how to live. Our problem is we didn't do it. And we are sinners. And we need forgiveness. And that only comes through the cross of Jesus Christ. You know, can you imagine somebody out in the middle of a lake drowning? I mean, they're just fighting the waters and somebody going out and saying... Let me, let me demonstrate to you four different methods by which you can swim back to shore. Okay? Just pay attention. Uh, folks, those people don't need somebody to give them an example of how to swim. They need somebody to save them. Our need was not so much somebody showing us how to live. It was somebody dying for us and forgiving us and empowering us to live how we ought to live. And so the writer of Hebrews is not telling these people, let me tell you how to get saved, run the race. No, they can't run the race until Jesus has saved them and forgiven them and put them in the race for us to run. Because our love for Jesus ought to be such <clears throat> because of what he has done for us our desire ought to be, Lord, let me for you 
run with patient endurance what you have given me to do because you're worthy of it. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that would be a blessing far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Folks, he deserves our very best because he's worthy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, you have come to us to save us in the only way we ever had any hope. And that's a hope outside of ourselves. Lord, we thank you that Christ is our Redeemer, our Savior. Lord, that he died in our place, the just for the unjust, so that he could bring us to you. And so, Lord, we glory in nothing other than the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you that as you have saved us, that you have called us to be your people on a bold mission to live a life of faithful, sacrificial service to you. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to take seriously the things that you've told us in your word, that we are to lay aside, Lord, anything that hinders us from being who you intend for us to be and doing what you want us to do. Lord, we thank you that when we fail, we have a pardoning God who is slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. And Lord, it is that mercy that we plead in our own lives even in this moment. Lord, we make our prayer in the name of Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.